We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're back with a familiar voice. Uh, that would be the voice of Gabe Kaminsky, who is doing investigative reporting over at The Daily Wire right now. But of course, you'll remember him from all of the great work that he's done at The Federalist. And Gabe, we are so excited to talk to you today about um, a new investigative story, actually a couple of them. Um, our most prolific intern ever <laughs> wrote at the Daily Wire just last week. Why don't you start by walking us through? And I want you to be, um, I want you to like really talk to us about this, the process that played out in the story, the the narrative that played out in the story, um, because it's a fascinating look at what is happening in communities all over the country. I will preface this by saying Gabe did a lot of excellent reporting for us on Loudoun County, um, and this is not just happening in Loudoun County. This is happening all over the country, as Gabe knows just as well as pretty much anyone. So tell us about this story that you reported last week, this long investigation on a small town sort of on the outskirts of the Portland area, as you write. What happened? Sure. So in summer 2020, basically amid the BLM riots and all that craziness, um, the city of Newburgh conducted an equity assessment and the, the school board passed an equity resolution. Um, and so this, you know, already there was sort of, this is a center right town, it's voted red since 2000, but already there was this sort of building progressive or left wing, whatever you want to call it, infiltration into schools. They formed things like uh, an anti-racism book club in schools, a, a club for those who quote, quote unquote, identify as black. Mm. Um, and several several private groups formed during this time. They mobilized on Facebook, and they're basically they're saying, "Hey, we want to like bring critical race theory to this district. We want to uh, sway this district in many ways." Those groups are Progressive Yam Hill, which is uh, on the Indivisible website, which is an affiliate of the George Soros Group. They're listed, um, and actually, interestingly, after we ran the story, Indivisible scrubbed. Progressive Yam Hill from the website. So that's almost another thing in and of itself. But mm -hmm. so there's also a group called Newburgh Equity and Education that forms. Um, and they, it, all these teachers union members are mobilizing on Facebook. Um, and at this time, you have a progressive school board, uh, progressive majority school board, a school board that supports BLM and pride flags in the classroom. And then come August 2021, about a year later, um, you have other school board members get elected. These uh, two others, which basically puts puts the school board to a right right leaning majority, mm -hmm. and they're fielding the parental responses of people in the community, and they're saying, "Hey, we're seeing politics get out of hand in the classroom. We're not comfortable with it. You know, we're going to put forth a resolution." So they put forth this resolution to ban political uh, flag signs and clothing from the classroom, uh, which passed four to three uh, because they they had sort of a four person conservative majority. And to a lot of people in this community, they're like, great, this is pretty uncontroversial. Schools should be teaching math, science, and English, not teaching how to pledge allegiance to the pride flag, which right. is one, one allegation that someone said to us. But immediately after this, there was this huge backlash among progressives in the community. Um, so there's two parts. One, educators and administrators just completely declined to enforce this policy. No one... No one took pride flags or BLM flags out of classrooms. 
a lot of these sort of those sort of initiatives that I mentioned persisted. Um, and you had the superintendent who was getting parental complaints. Hey, the school board passed this policy to take politics out of the classroom. Uh, and he just he would say, well, he responded to one parental complaint actually two days after he was fired eventually by the school board and said, BLM flags are not political in nature. But according <laughs> to that resolution, they are. And obviously they are political in nature. There's there's no question about that. So you have this whole school, that district, that's just declining to enforce this policy. And it makes, it's pretty insane. It's like, what do you do when those in power just don't, uh, don't, or I guess not those in power, but teachers just don't follow orders by the larger district. And at the same time, you have this mobilization by those progressive groups and Facebook groups um, who start doxing these teachers, which resulted in one being fired from his job and another, uh, another who was a freelance artist who got her work removed from two locations that we know of that she disclosed to us. Um, these teachers have been threatened, harassed, their families are getting called. People in the community are like totally ignoring them, um, or at least a portion of those who are so against this stuff. Uh, we obtained several police reports in regards to the situation. Uh, Dave Brown, one of the school board members who was a pretty beloved community member, um, told us that the FBI called him about the situation after one of the progressives said on a Zoom call, we want to quote, completely destroy Dave Brown. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's those two parts and then they, they basically mobilize on this huge recall effort to, uh, you can do it every six months in this community. And they, they launched this initiative to recall these school board members, um, which is, I have some more info on that, uh, coming soon, but, um, and on that recall Hollywood, they essentially start bringing in money from a lot of outside sources, which shocked a lot of people. So uh, Rosario Dawson, an actress, started donating money, kind of like a B, A-list actor, probably like a B, I don't know. The former <laughs> girlfriend of Senator Cory Booker, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't even know that. We were looking through Alexis Nexus and we saw that. So it was pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> and then also Trevor Simeon, who made that TV show, Dear White People. Mm -hmm. um, I guess it's fair to say that's a pretty left-leaning TV show. Um, and a couple other people in the Hollywood complex start donating money to this town. And you're wondering, how is that possible? Well, it's because this guy running the recalls is this guy named Matthew Moriarty, who has a home in Dundee, Oregon, not far. And he admitted in a press release, I contact I contact my friends in Hollywood when I see things going on um, that I disagree with. So they're bringing Hollywood money into this town. The teachers union starts mailing out flyers to people saying, hey, we want to recall these school board members, which is just so inappropriate for a teachers union to be doing that. I feel like um, the teachers union starts, you know, continues the doxing. Um, so in many ways, we call this like an educational deep state. And I think that's a very fair way to call this because you have this deep state of the school and all these private groups coordinating to ruin these board members lives while defying the policy. There's so much to uh, break down from that description, which is enormously helpful. I want to start by asking you about what you're hearing from parents, because I have to imagine it sounds like 
just immense frustration because at a certain point you hit the the brick wall of what you call the educational deep state and you're you're hitting even as a parent this um this blockade of a force that's so much more powerful than you or at least feels so much more powerful than you um what do they sort of what are their emotions what are their reactions what do you hear from them in terms of all of that parents are beyond like fed up in this community um, I mean, that's just a mild way to put it. They, so many parents stand behind these board members. And the most interesting thing I've noticed working on this story and other stories I'm working on right now are so many of these people who want to get politics out of the classroom are just, a lot of them actually are Democrats or they are classical liberals. Um, they are not, you know, red meat conservatives um, in this town. There certainly are a lot of conservatives in this town who support that initiative, but these parents just are entirely frustrated with, um, I mean, Joe Morlock, the superintendent who just grandstanded and just declined to enforce this policy forever, which led to his firing. Now they have an interim superintendent in place who, um, now they're essentially searching for another superintendent, the school board members. Uh, they told me they're looking for someone who's going to enforce the policy. Um, and the question is, how do you do that? Um, it's a small district, so essentially you could, you know, go school to school and try to handle it. But uh, parents really don't know what to do. They feel powerless. And I think that makes a lot of sense because, again, what do you do when those in power just don't follow their own policies? In my mind, it just feels like, OK, now it's time to there have to be some sort of legal recourse for what went on. Um, I don't know. That's not, you know, my so I have no idea how that takes place, but uh, yeah, it's what, what they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do next, but in regards to the recall, um, a lot of the results are in right now and they're going to announce in early February. And actually the two school board members, as of right now, it looks like they're not going to get recalled. About some of the data I saw about 52% of people voted no on recalling Dave Brown and Brian Shannon. Um, and so parents are pretty hopeful that they can stay in office, but um, they're also very nervous because they think that the progressives now are going to move on and say, okay, now it's time to recall the other two school members who supported this policy, uh, Trevor DeHart and Renee Powell. Mm. Um, so they think that, you know, it's, this is going to continue probably. And it's like, a, it's almost like a war there. That raises the question of how this is dividing the community. Um, and it's interesting in this case because you're talking about, as you described it, a, a fairly red community that votes Republican routinely. Um, and yet there are, the, the recall is such a good example, there are these divides that it's not as though everybody is on one side or the other. It's that you have people on both sides that are deeply at odds. I mean, this is, these, these fissures are so deep that go to the issue of it's not just politics, it's what the left is calling human rights. As, as you mentioned earlier, they claim that Black Lives Matter is not a political movement because they believe it's an issue of, of human rights and, and basic decency, which of course it's not. I mean, it is it is very political. Um, and so there's they're squabbling over really deep issues. And it sounds as though, I don't mean this to be a leading question, but it sounds as though they are actually genuinely very divided in the small red community. Well, it, 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 it sort of serves as an emblem for what's going on in the entire country right now, which is this question we're all grappling with, which is that are we go are we headed towards a national divorce 
or can we find a way to bridge the gap? And I, you know, there's like all these pundits on the right who feel very strongly one way or the other. I don't know what I think about the issue. I mean, I think a national divorces are horrific, an awful idea, whatever that entails. But yeah, what's going on in this community there, from what I saw in the recall, it seems like, you know, it's a difference by about 1300 votes. Those who voted no, as of right now on those two board members, which indicates that among people in the community, there is a majority of people who don't want politics in the classroom. And in my opinion, it very much seems like it's a majority because I feel like there's so many people who easily just get sucked into believing any number of the left's premises on this issue that somehow taking politics out of the classroom entails like some sort of authoritarian move. Um, I don't know if, yeah, the, the divides in this community will bridge, but it's, it's specifically interesting because it's in Portland um, which is such, you know, if you think of left-wing cities in America, I mean, that probably comes to like number one next to like Seattle. So the outside of Portland, that's like, you know, the left has been, people who I spoke to and according to a lot of the data on like elections in, in Newburgh, they've been slowly shifting blue for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I guess with the Soros uh, affiliated group, Progressive Yamhill and all these Hollywood people, it indicates that, this is a town I think the left recognizes is somehow important and they're making strides to, uh, I guess, take it over or, or claim it from the right. Well, that's what's really, I mean, there's so much interesting about this, but what's what's interesting about the Hollywood example in particular, it's that you have these local issues that get nationalized and even globalized in some cases. But in this case, it seems like there's a real double-edged sword there in that it's it's being nationalized in a way that brings resources and attention and money in for the left, but also in a way that, I mean, you investigated the story out for the Daily Wire, for a national publication. And in a sense, the nationalization of this issue is not just on the side of it. It is not just an advantage for the left anymore. More because you and again this is one this is one question that you will have an, uh, an a well-informed answer to better than just about anybody could these issues are like empowering emboldening parents in other communities if you talk to Loudoun County parents they tell you they hear from people in Wisconsin that they're trying to replicate the Loudoun model so in a sense are some of these sort of snowballing um, into each other for the side of the parents yeah, I think you hit the uh, nail on the head because I was talking, a lot of the people who I spoke to who helped me, you know, the sources in this town who were talking to me, they feel so empowered by what happened in places like Loudoun County. Like they knew the Daily Wire, um, Luke Rosiak did so much reporting on what happened in Loudoun County. And, they, and a lot of people saw that and they say, hey, we feel like this is a little similar to us. It's not the same sort of town, but we see what's going on in the schools it makes us uncomfortable. We're not, we're dissatisfied with it. And uh, we don't know who to turn to. And these, you know, these small communities, they can't turn to government because government's inefficient. Um, They can't turn to the law because it seems like the law, I don't know what the legal ramifications are, what happened in Newburgh. But as of now, I think they're looking for attorneys, people. But so they turn to journalists, like um, they're turning to national media outlets who can shine a light on it. And I think those stories um already actually i've seen what happened in newburgh has resulted in you know we received uh me and some other colleagues received several emails of other 
people at Oregon specifically, I'm, I like right after we published the Newburgh story, we had a town right near Newburgh called Beaverton, where they were, uh, we, we ran a story very similar on that, something happening in classrooms. Um, and I had other, other parents in ele- of elementary school students in Oregon who reached out. So I think even though it's a national outlet, even among state level, a bunch of schools and people in Oregon and different communities see that and they say, hey, if they're covering Newburgh, maybe they can cover Dundee, maybe they can cover McKinville. Um, and there's just, there's like way too much of this going on to be reported. And it's so, it's almost so, so underreported, even though there's so much education reporting going on right now. It's like, there's such an overwhelming amount of uh, stories that could come out. And it's like, there could be so many more education reporters covering all this stuff. Right. And it's, it, that's interesting because it's really snowballed for you. I think if I'm remembering correctly, the first place you reported on was Naperville um, in Illinois. And then you did a lot in Loudoun and now you're up over in the Portland area, really around the entire country. But what's I'm curious about is how do these examples what are the parallels or what are the commonalities? What are the, the common variables in each of them? I'm sure there's almost too many to um, you know delineate, but what are the big standouts from your perspective that um, are common in all of these examples? I think what stands out is that you have most oftentimes outside sources funneling money to these efforts. You have these well-paid and well-funded and well-backed consulting groups, uh, maybe related to George Soros or otherwise from major cities who, when we report on these small communities, they go into these small communities and they bring immense, immense resources and immense wealth. And they bring in people who have been educated at um, some of the best universities in America uh, whether that be Duke University of Michigan um, or some of the ostensibly best universities in America. Um, and they bring all these people in from outside sources. So I, I guess that's the biggest standout to me is that it's so much outside coming into small communities and people in the communities are saying, how did this happen? And then they turn to media and media has to sort of unravel, like, how did, how did this happen? <laughs> I wonder if part of it, and you can speak to this, is the, uh, I guess, disproportionate uh, political liberalism of teachers, even in red communities. And I'm thinking like even back to my own experience that teachers tend to be um, liberal. And then even in conservative communities, they're going to just sort of naturally, statistically be more liberal than the community they serve. Um, And it's interesting that you would have this demand uh, for BLM kind of propaganda or trans propaganda in uh, schools or in schools that are in communities where the vast majority of people aren't sort of on board with that agenda, um, but sort of forcing it down the throat of the community from teachers because the teachers are, are thoroughly convinced that this is not a matter of politics. This is a matter of human rights and kindness and decency and life or death in some cases. That's a line they often trot out to parents of kids who are, are questioning their their gender and their biological sex. Is that something you found um, kind of across the board that teachers in many cases, uh, the, the teachers that are pushing for these agendas uh, tend to be more liberal than the communities they're serving? Yeah, I think if you look at statistics, teachers are just always more liberal, probably than I guess, I I don't know what the ranks are, but in terms of professions in general, I mean, Mm -hmm. and teachers have very different priorities than parents. Um, Teachers, 
they they are trained in these institutions in uh, critical theory or any number of theories that are prominent on the left, um, they're probably not exposed to, you know, neutral classical liberal or conservative doctrine in general. But the reality is none of those doctrines matter because they shouldn't have any bearing in the classroom. And what has happened is you have these teachers who learn these theories, uh, who are mobilized in teachers unions, like the Randy Weingartens of the world or the education associations, and they, they, and they coordinate and they sort of, uh, they, they have in their mind that their job is to enforce their ideas onto kids. Um, and almost always parents are saying, well, uh, you know, just the other day I was on the phone with a parent and she said it was, it was in regards to a queer and sexuality alliance club in schools. And the schools put forth this club for fourth graders, mind you, for fourth graders um, without parental consent. And the, and, the, and the parents said to me, that's that's something that I want to teach my kid if I want to at home. But, but in the teacher's eyes, it's, well, this is important. This is social justice. Social justice is education. It, uh, we should be teaching uh, all of these, any number of these intersectionality theories on kids. This is an ad I'm really excited to bring to you because it addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this program. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable version of yourself in 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and gives you new perspective on your lives and in the world in 2022. So how do they do that? Well, with 22 ideas for 2022, Blinkist's content can incredibly impact your lives. So there are titles of books on Blinkist and they advertise themselves on their website as big ideas in small packages. So you can read major books by people like Scott Gottlieb, who has uncontrolled spread on Blinkist. Even Roger Scruton, How to Be a Conservative, that's on Blinkist. You can read books from prominent authors, books that are making a huge impact on our politics and on our culture. Ryan Holiday, who's been on this podcast, you can listen to Lives of the Stoics. You can read Lives of the Stoics, and it says right here on Blinkist's website with a subscription that book becomes a 13-minute read. Trey Gowdy, Doesn't Hurt to Ask, that book becomes a 15-minute read on Blinkist. They have such a huge library of really important and impactful titles. If you want to read Ilhan Omar's book, you can do that in a truncated time period and it becomes digestible. We are drowning in content right now in our world. And to be able to to condense important ideas from major books that are so impactful is an invaluable contribution. It's exactly the kind of innovation that we need in this high-tech world where, again, we are drowning in content. And to be able to consume it responsibly does require some work. And this condenses the important information from those books without losing anything. 
that is an aha moment, right? This is an innovation that is bringing us something important that works with the way we live our lives now. And too many people, because of the way we live our lives now, just don't have enough time to get to books, period. This makes books accessible. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your seven-day free trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. Yeah, and then as you sort of keep peeling back the layers of the onion, um, you can look at what's being taught in the schools that teach teachers, uh, the, the educational uh, institutions that train our educators, um, which, of course, statistically are uh, far to the left and certainly further to the left in the country and a lot of communities that they uh, ship their their uh, trainees into. Um, Gabe, I think there's there's more to talk about on this, but I b- before we keep diving into something like that, I want to ask you actually about a Biden nominee. You reported um, that he sought $44,000 in relocation expenses for a home he wasn't living in. His nomination was actually, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, scuttled for uh, reasons of, uh, let's say, also disproportionate progressivism, maybe compared to the country. So walk us through this story and what you reported out. So a, a while ago, I received some court documents from the um, from a group called the American Accountability Foundation, and they just forwarded me these documents, their conservative watchdog group. And they essentially it was a court pleading. Um, and it essentially said that David Chipman, Joe Biden's former ATF director nominee, attempted to claim a relocation expense reimbursement on a home he wasn't living at. Um, and it's more specifically, he was being separated at the time. And it was a, a pleading on um, who would uh, like who would look over his children. Um, and so the court pleading showed that uh, he was, he essentially ATF, even though they knew that he wasn't living at the home of his separated wife, Mickey, um, they were content to initially be giving out this reimbursement and it was only when his separated wife, Mickey, who was moving to Texas and he was moving to Detroit, wrote TTF and said, David is not uh, living at the home. He shouldn't be entitled to $44,000 because she became aware of it through her attorney, I think. And then ATF then denied it. Um, but the reason being the law is that federal regulations say in order to obtain a relocation expense for ATF, and I, don't, I think this applies to other government or law enforcement agencies, you have to actually be living at the home that you're claiming reimbursements for. Um, And he wasn't living there. He was living uh, a mile away. As he told me on the phone, he was living a mile away in his partner's home in Ashburn, Virginia. Uh, So I don't even, I think that's also Loudoun County, but yeah, it's pretty nuts. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. That is also Loudoun County. Um, So, yeah, and this is amazing. The story is amazing because you you interviewed Chipman and you get some good quotes from him. Like he says, back to my previous life, it was nice to ride this roller coaster, (laughs) reflecting on the fact that uh, a Biden administration official told CNN after they pulled Chipman um, that we will land him in a non-confirmed job in the administration. Chipman tells you they've offered a couple positions that weren't sort of senior executive positions. So he's retired 
fired from the government now. And it's an interesting insight here because you also find from him, he says he's unaware of federal regulations that reimbursements were contingent on living at the home. That is ridiculous in and of itself that even if you don't know that you would, even if you don't know that this is against federal regulations, that you would collect the reimbursements despite not living there, I think is an incredible story of maybe bureaucratic entitlement, bureaucratic hubris, um, that, you know, you, you would even take that money um, to begin with, right? Because maybe you, you can correct me here, but he's not living in a home and he's taking payments from the federal government anyway. Yeah, so he didn't actually get paid the $44,000, but he was really on track to because ATF, they, and, and the crazy thing is it's more than just not on Chipman. ATF, this is a bureaucratic failure because they knew that he wasn't living at the home mm-hmm. and they would, and whoever signed those papers didn't read their own federal regulations that say this guy has to be living at the home. Mm-hmm. So it's like a failure all around. Um, the fact that he would possibly, why, why would he need $44,000 to move out of a home that he's not living at? Mm-hmm. I mean, may, may, look, I don't know the specifics of his divorce settlement. Like there might've been things at that house that he was getting my inclination either way is that he doesn't need $44,000 to move from uh, Virginia to Detroit because you can get in a truck, pack your crap, and then go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, so this sort of uh, steers the conversation back to a lot of the reporting that you've done in general in that um, I, I guess the phrase bureaucratic entitlement maybe does put a fine point on it in that there are I'm curious then if you see a parallel here and maybe what you've seen in communities around the country where um, teachers, in particular school boards, they feel like they shouldn't have to be accountable to parents or maybe it's just that they've always had so much unchecked power or that they've gone so long with so much unchecked power that the idea of people checking their power sort of makes them sl- like come back even harder. I remember this in Loudoun, um, Beth Bartz. You can think of somebody like Beth Bartz, um, who was on the school board over there. And when she sort of started getting called out, it was the sense that, like, how dare you question my authority? Is that something you've seen? Totally. Um, yeah, there's these people think that they're not accountable to the people that vote for them or, uh, or people who just just normal people. Um, and, and the, the Beth Bart's example is really good. Um, and all these examples, it is, uh, it is, you know, it's astounding. Mm -hmm. And if you, you said something earlier that was so interesting to me that it's over, that it's overwhelming and that, you know, they're, people are turning to these national news outlets for, um, to, to create change in their community because they see that national media attention can create change in their community. What do you see in terms of parents having success? What are the things that have really helped them maybe shake loose their uh, situation and adjust things and let them get, get things ironed out in their communities? What, what's the sort of common recipe um, to unlocking that? For parents to, I guess you mean address the the issues that keep coming up, or to maybe maybe a good way to say it is to restore sanity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think it feels like there's no sanity in America, but um, no, I don't. Uh, I think that I guess they restore sanity um, 
in these schools, a lot of times they do reach out to media and get that national attention, which um, can, you know, really make an impact, but it's definitely more than that. It's not like it's the media. Um, these people, a lot of times they form local groups, uh, like concerned parents of Newburgh, uh, no left turn in education is a, a great group that, uh, founded by this woman named Alana Fishbein that sort of, uh, they, they, they're like a national group, but they have a lot of branches across the country that are essentially, or Alana herself goes to these younger or not younger, but, uh, people in those communities and connects them to like pro bono attorneys and whatnot. So it's, it's a lot of grassroots, um, activism included with, you know, the media is good, but the grassroots activism is, I'd say probably how assuming all goes well for those people in Newburgh that they would beat this recall because they, they told people the truth about what was going on. And regardless of this progressive initiative to uh, silence and dox and, you know, show up at people's houses and break gates, um, it really could work. Like they really might survive the recall based on that activism. While we're checking in with Gabe, I want to ask him uh, another about another article he's written recently, which is uh, five Hank Jr. songs that would uh, be canceled today. Tell us about this one, Gabe. What, which are the which are the five songs, or which are the ones that you think are the the best examples, and why are they good examples? So, I actually wrote that article like I think two years ago, <laughs> but um, I'm trying to remember what I said. I it was before I was. Uh, I think I said if the, the main one that would be canceled is if the South would have won by Hank Williams Jr., <laughs> which, I mean, you know, potentially could, uh, well, no, it doesn't warrant canceling, but it's, you know, controversial. <laughs> but, but this was just published in the Daily Wire, right? Yeah, it was. But no, it was published, like, uh, when I was contributing for them, like, a couple years ago. I forget which ones I said, honestly, specifically. Oh, a country, boy can, a country Boy Can Survive would be canceled um yeah <laughs> okay so this is because i was looking at your author page so you wrote that two years ago yeah yeah so i was contributing for them like freelance stuff for like the readers pass like before i started interning at the federalist a little bit i was wondering because it actually sounded familiar to me the article actually sounded familiar to me but it's funny how like we can't get past this stuff right it, it keeps recurring in the culture yeah um and i guess my question then for you knowing now that this article is two years old um what is the what is the loss because to to me some of it is just that and it's it's interesting that the article is a couple of years old because it it speaks to how sort of deeply ingrained a lot of this stuff is in our culture, which speaks to the takeaway for me um, in that it's not so much that songs are getting canceled. It's just that they're not even getting written in the first place, right? Like nobody, they're not even getting written in the first place in part because people aren't even, and this would not be true of Hank Jr., but that they're not even sort of thinking thoughts as freely as they used to. And that's not to say that those thoughts are all good um, and virtuous, but that they could sort of lead to to better and, and more virtuous thoughts because, you know, you, you work through bad ideas and, and get to good ones. Um, how have you seen that, I guess, play out in the culture? You write a lot about country music and you think a lot about country music. Um, Tell me more about the maybe the deeper cultural issues that are uh, the, the trickle down from the deeper cultural problems into uh, music. Yeah, I guess 
I mean, the Hank Williams piece, um, or just other things like it, that, that idea in general is that we have this culture that is trying to instituted by the corporate boardrooms and up, which takes part in these school board communities, um, in the sense yep. that they want to stifle, um, any discourse that is, you know, non non-compliant with, um, like this sort of, uh, really, you know, bleak and, uh, I mean, the progressive ideas that have, that have come to form like, like America in many ways. Um, and it just results in people having to walk this line, um, that they shouldn't have to walk. And then they just have to be the most like, uh, black and white versions of themselves that they can't express any ideas in contrary to, um, you know, the, the woke industrial complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, there's so many, I don't know, I think what, what you have, I guess, developed is a really interesting beat, um, where you're basically holding accountable people who are wielding positions in, the, in their bureaucracy to enforce these cultural standards that I, I think are sort of shocking to parents. And I guess as we wrap up, or parents and members of the community, and probably in some cases, kids. So I guess as we wrap up, I'm, I, I want to hear your thoughts on that and your experiences with that um, at how this is sort of a, a Charles Murray-esque clash um, of different backgrounds and worldviews. And we talked about this a little earlier, but how this is, these, these clashes are, it's almost like everyone feels like they're suddenly getting doused with freezing cold water at their school board meetings. Um, and they hadn't realized what was sort of happening under their noses until it, it kind of jumped out um, in, in 2020 or maybe earlier than that, like in the case of Loudoun, um, is this at its, at its heart, really a, a culture clash? Yeah, it's completely a culture clash of, um, like we discussed the interests of normal parents who aren't affiliated with corporations and big government and, uh, all these outside interests who just want to go to work. Um, like this UPS driver I talked the other day, whose kid is learning like crazy things in schools. He's like, what the hell? I don't, I don't need to deal with this crap. But then, so there, there's all these normal parents who are just dealing with this BS um, and they continue to. And then you have the interests of the outside groups, which are, or I wouldn't say outside, but the more powerful groups. So teachers unions, the teachers themselves, um, the the governments, which are influenced by all these other private groups or the politicians being lobbied by um, groups related to George Soros or who have the interests of George Soros in mind. Um, so, um, and then all these outside consultants coming in. So it's just like this complete battle between two visions of America, one vision where it's like, get the hell away from me. I don't need you to be indoctrinating my kids. And another vision where it's like, hey, uh, we want to protect you. We want to secure you. Um, it's our job to teach your kids um, that he that that he or she uh, has white privilege because of the color of his skin, or that he is implicitly biased because this is what they teach at Harvard University. And Harvard University is a great place. And you're a UPS driver, so go screw yourself. <laughs> so the last question I then want to ask you, and this is difficult, but 
what is the what is your expectation for how this proceeds in the next couple of years it does feel and it seems like parents have incredible momentum right now and in different communities they are clearly making um change happen but do you think as somebody who follows this and talks to people on the ground and is you know in pretty good touch with the national activists and some of the local activists is it your sense that the pendulum could actually really swing back in the other direction? And I understand this is sort of uh, dispersed and, and difficult on a national level to to make predictions. But do you think that uh, there's going to be a, a lot of sort of positive change for the parents um, across the entire country in the next couple of years? Or do you think as this fades into the background, if it does, um, this is sort of too deeply rooted um, to be dealt with uh, by you know a, a couple of communities pushing back well like we said we've seen this snowball effect of communities like Loudoun and i think hopefully newburgh um and other places like seattle that have this occurred where it empowers parents in other communities to take a stand um and i think there's a there's a major momentum right now like the amount of grassroots local groups and national groups that are springing up um, it's like pretty incredible. There's so, there's such a movement for kids in education and not what, you know, what before what we saw. Um, I guess the question is whether that momentum will proceed and like whether um, media outlets and people in power will continue to care about what is going on in these schools because it feels like for so long media was not covering what went what, what occurred and was occurring in education more than beyond important things like school tax credits and other things like campus insanity, like when a Duke professor does this for campus reform, you know, stuff like that, which is important, but it's so much deeper than even Rex Kennedy was paid $30,000 at University of Michigan because <laughs> that stuff's been going on forever. Um, it's like there's, there's so many different stories in all these communities um, and I guess the question, yeah, I mean, I hope the momentum can proceed. I'd like to see all these stories keep being reported on. Yeah, no, the, that makes sense. And everything you, you pointed out there, I mean, it, it's, it's interesting to see the, again, the parallels between what was happening on college campuses for years. And now people are sort of paying attention to that on the high school level, on the, I mean, the K through 12 level, um, it's, it's been amazing to watch. And Gabe, we appreciate you uh, shining a light and, and sort of bringing the spotlight to those communities because they really do seem to be where the change is happening in this country right now. We appreciate all of your reporting and all of your time today, Gabe. Thanks. Let's go, Brandon. <laughs> Gabe Kaminsky, who is doing investigative report over at the, the Daily Wire, um, was obviously and has written many, many times for us, which we appreciate. Um, and Gabe, actually, you it's funny that you mentioned the Ibram X. Kendi thing. Before we leave, you also reported, you reported out that story, right? That they had given a ridiculous amount to Ibram X. Kendi recently. Yeah, it was uh, University of Wisconsin. They gave him 45K, and then he had them remove his remarks from a private server. Love it. Love it. Uh, on Wisconsin. Uh, great. <laughs>
that's stunning. Um, all right, Gabe Kaminsky, investigations for the Daily Wire. You can follow him on Twitter at Gabe underscore Kaminsky. Kaminsky actually spelled like Jasinski with the SKY. Uh, so make sure to give Gabe a follow and to follow his work. I I'm Emily Jasinski, like culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until Where's then, the be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Today